So like last week uh, was part one of storms. And uh, I spoke to you about some of the storms that Jesus faced and how he responded. We will face storms in our life and how we respond will be of great importance. Jesus overcame every stormy adversity and trial and, and, and difficulty, and he did so as heaven's champion. And you know, it's, it's God's expressed will that we would do the same, that we would conquer every storm as well. And uh, the scripture said that we would be more than conquerors to the one, <clears throat> excuse me, who has loved us. So we spoke last week about Jesus being caught with his disciples in a violent storm on the Sea of Galilee. And uh, the disciples responded in full panic mode. Fear, not faith, gripped their hearts. In contrast, we showed the image of Jesus, who was the perfect picture of peace as he was asleep on a cushion. And Jesus was able to experience this peace because he lived with the knowledge that his heavenly Father is sovereign. And it was Jesus who taught who taught that not even one single sparrow can fall to the ground without his father's knowledge and that we are of greater worth than many sparrows. So so that should bring us tremendous comfort. Disciples had a lot of growing to do, right? And so so do we. In time, they became people of faith. In fact, the accusation against them in the book of Acts was that these are they that turn the world upside down. Would to God that that would be the accusation levied against us, that we turned our world upside down. Really, it's right side up. But uh, what I want you to understand is that there's tremendous hope for us because if they started so poorly, they started in fear, and they moved to become people of faith, then, then what we discover is that God is faithful to complete and to perfect that which he has begun in us, and it depends upon God's great faithfulness. So Jesus was asleep soundly uh, in the boat during the storm, and I suppose someone uh, not only woke him with an accusation that we'll look at in just a minute, but, but I, I would imagine somebody may have even tried to shake the, sh- the, so- the shoulders of Jesus to, to wake him up. When I was young, uh, my Saturdays and my, sun- and my summers were spent working for my dad. And I'm not complaining, although I didn't like it much at the time. It developed in me a discipline and a work ethic that, that I really appreciate even uh, to this day. And one of the ways that my dad would try to make sure that we got to the store on time was that he would, he would make sure that I was not only awake, but I was up and out of bed. And the way that he would do that is by he, he would come to my door and he would start to sing. And it was like it's like fingernails against the chalkboard, you know. And it was like it was so effective to get me up out of bed because I just wanted him to stop, you know what I'm saying? And uh, it it worked. And you know what? Um, I got to be honest with you. I did the same thing to my kids because sons become their fathers and daughters become their mothers. I don't know if you know that. So one of the disciples wakes Jesus up with this horrible, terrible accusation: "Lord, don't you care?" that we're about to perish. And, and may we never, you know, respond to troubles with accusing God of not, of not caring. And yet, you know, if, if we're honest, we, we may not say it, but that's one of the first thoughts that kind of looms over our mind when we find ourselves in trouble, when things go south, when something breaks, when some, somebody gets sick. That's one of the first thoughts that just comes across our mind, right? And, and what I want you to know 
is that those were seeds that were sown uh, in the DNA of Adam and Eve when they were expelled from the Garden of Paradise because because sons become their fathers and daughters become their mothers. And and they have, have given us that. And I want you to know that that is a false perception. So Jesus rebukes the wind and the sea and immediately it calms down. And, and, and it obeys him. And what we said last week is that there are some storms that we need, to, we, we need to resist with heavenly authority. And what I said is that if Jesus discerned even for one single moment that that storm was being sent by his heavenly father or ordained by his heavenly father, he would have never rebuked it. He uses the same kind of language in shutting down the storm in the same way that he expelled demons. And, and because of the encounter that he had with in Gadara, the, what's called the demoniac of Gadara, called Legion. And, and, and we know that that was a, a storm that was somehow manipulated by the powers of darkness. And so Jesus rebuked it. But today, I, I don't want to talk to you about what Jesus rebuked. I want to talk to you about a storm that Jesus endured. Because sometimes we're to resist, and sometimes there are storms that God has ordained that we learn how to endure. And so that's what I want to talk to you about today. In his book, The Applause of Heaven, Max Licato writes this, It wasn't right that spikes pierced the hands and feet of the one who formed the earth. It wasn't right that the Son of God was forced to bear the silence of heaven. It wasn't right, but it happened. For while Jesus was on the cross, God sat on his hands. He turned his back. He ignored the screams of the innocent. He sat in silence while the sins of the world were laid upon his son. Was it right? No. Was it fair? No. Was it love? Yes. And it was God's plan from before the foundation of the world. Jesus is called the lamb who was slain before the earth's foundation. This is, this is called, theologians call this the blood of the everlasting covenant. It was an agreement between the Father, Son, and Spirit before time began that Jesus would bear the sins of the world and that he would be our Savior and Redeemer. It was love, love for his Father and a passion for his glory. And it was also love for lost sinners that enabled Jesus, motivated Jesus, moved Jesus to drink the cup of divine wrath. But not only did Jesus drink from the cup, he drained it bone dry so that there's not a drop left for you and me to drink because we believe in Jesus. This is the reason why believers are not ordained to obtain wrath, but mercy, because Jesus Christ became the great wrath absorber. Let me say this first about the wrath of God. Not that we have to apologize for the revelation that God is angry at at sin. He's angry at evil. Let, let, let me share this quote from Jay Packer. He says, would a God who took as much pleasure in evil as he did in good be a good God? Would a God who did not react adversely to evil in his world be morally perfect? Surely not. But it is precisely this adverse reaction to evil, which is necessary part of moral perfection, that the Bible has in view when it speaks of God's wrath. God's wrath is, is not a, uh, a defect in his character, as some might suggest. God is perfect in all of his ways. Without God's 
severity, without God's stern posture toward evil, his love would be weak and ineffectual instead of infinite and life-changing. God is, like I said, infinitely holy and perfect in every way. And the wrath of God magnifies, it magnifies the grace of God. For, for without an understanding of the consequences of our sin, we would never be able to rightly value and appreciate grace and forgiveness, which came at such an enormous price, the suffering of the Son of God. But I haven't yet described the magnitude of the storm that Jesus endured with absolute abandonment. And, you know, they, they, they rate storms uh, different categories. The, 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 this is off the charts that Jesus would endure for you and I. So let me just say this, that if you think that the cross is the most severe storm that Jesus faced, in my opinion, you would be mistaken. And my hope this morning is to prove my point today. Now, let me say this first. I'll never minimize the physical sufferings of the cross. I'll never, ever minimize the pain that Jesus endured when his back was shredded with a cat of nine tails or when Jesus was physically crucified. In fact, Isaiah 52, 14 says that Jesus was so marred, he was so disfigured that he was not even recognizable any longer as a human being. But nothing the devil or nothing wicked hands could do could compare to Jesus having become a curse for us. The families of those who perished on 9-11 justly consider ground zero to be holy ground. I consider Gethsemane to be ground zero and holy ground. It is the place where Jesus first spilt his blood. For me personally, preaching about Gethsemane is one of my, is one of my favorite subjects to talk about. It's one, of, it's one of the things that every time I muse or think or meditate or study the subject, I see something else, I see something grand the treasures that are found here in the message of Gethsemane in, in, in such a garden of sorrow is absolutely amazing. It's the sweetest fruit to be found growing in the soil where Jesus spilt drops of blood. To those of us who have been set free from the power of sin and death and are believers and followers of Jesus, Gethsemane will always be ground zero because it is the place where Jesus decided that he would experience hell for us rather than go to heaven without us. Let me say that again because it's so important. It's in Gethsemane that Jesus made the decision to experience hell for us rather than go to heaven without us. D.A. Carson writes this. He says, in the first garden, not your will but mine, selfishness, changed paradise into a desert, a wilderness, and brought man from Eden to Gethsemane. But now not my will, but yours, brings anguish to the man who prays, but transforms the desert into a paradise and lifts man from Gethsemane to the gates of glory. Paul's reasoning is to say two men, that God reacts to, to two men in the universe, the first man, Adam, and the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. The first man, Adam, by his act of disobedience, through that disobedience, all men became sinners. 
But in contrast, by the, by the one act of obedience of Jesus Christ, all who believe upon him become righteous. The way that Jesus walked to the cross, the way that Jesus bore the stripes upon his back, the way that Jesus died on the cross, to me is the evidence that victory was forged in the Garden of Gethsemane. If there was no Gethsemane, there would be no cross. And if there was no cross, there would be no redemption. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and even John, all record events that took place in Gethsemane. How appropriate that these gnarled, twisted olive trees would be the place of critical mass where ground zero would take place. Here, olives are crushed. No, but more importantly, here, Jesus would be crushed. We'll start in Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. It says this, When they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here. He said to the eight, Sit here while I pray. He then took Peter, James, and John, the other three, which made 11, along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. Our English words don't describe sufficiently what Jesus was going through, but this sentence that he now says maybe gives us a clue. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, stay here and keep watch, which is a call for them to watch with him and pray. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, or my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. Think of it, Jesus is saying, that the sorrow that he was experiencing felt like as if he was dying. I'm sure that that expression must have, must have shook up Peter, James, and John. They had never seen Jesus like this before. Jesus was always the, the model of courage and bravery and, and, and boldness. But, but, but now there's something that's come over Jesus that has that frightened them. Just, just moments before... Jesus was happy. Jesus was joyful. He was at peace. They celebrated the Passover. They even sang a hymn in closing and celebrating the Passover. And now, this was so unlike Jesus. Once they arrived at Gethsemane, everything changed. There was a heaviness, a cloud of darkness that came over everyone there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus is deeply troubled this, because this is ground zero. This is where Jesus experienced indescribable mental, emotional grief and physical grief and anguish. This was ground zero where Jesus experienced hell as he would become sin for us who knew no sin. This is the... the Remember last week I asked you to, to remember the mystery of the incarnation, that, that Jesus, one person, the Son of God, the Son of Man, one person with two distinct natures, one divine and one human. Here, as I said last week, Jesus didn't rebuke the storm as a, as in his divine nature, but rather as a man full of the Holy Spirit and full of the Word of God. And so here Jesus is enduring Gethsemane in his humanity. Here is a man who is gripped with horror of becoming sin for us. The Synoptic Gospels paint a graphic picture of what's going on here. They use words like sorrowful, distressed, which describes the state of mind of Jesus. He was half distracted. He was restless. It was, it was a state of confusion that Jesus kind of felt 
This is what he was going through. And, and it only gets worse. Luke says he was in agony, which is, which is a description of somebody who was gripped in trembling fear. Horror. So Mark chapter 14, verse 35 says this. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and he prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Gripped by this absolute horror, the force of which drives him face down upon the ground. He prays fervently, but he's in weakness, weakness we've never seen before. And here's the reason why I called Gethsemane Ground Zero. It's because here Jesus began, as Luke says in the next verse, he began to sweat profusely. Great drops of blood. Verse 43 of Luke 22 says this, And an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. I think that's one of the most beautiful verses in the entire Bible. Verse 44. His sweat became as great drops of blood. And Jesus was so weak that the Father felt it necessary to dispatch an angel to strengthen Jesus. How the angel strengthened him is only a matter of speculation. Did the angel touch him physically? Just the angel's appearance, did that bring comfort to him? Did he have a personal word that that was shared from the Father? Did, did, Did the angel just encourage him that of his ultimate victory and that all the good that would be accomplished by his sacrifice? I don't know, but Father felt it necessary that Jesus should be strengthened by an angel. Charles Spurgeon writes this, How strange it sounds that the Lord of life and the Lord of glory should be so weak that he should need to be strengthened by one of his own creatures, one that he had created. So here's the question that we've got to ask at this point. Why? Did Jesus display such anguish and distress in the face of a future that he had prophesied so many times in the Gospels? I mean, he he would say, the Son of Man must be betrayed and then crucified by the chief elders and the scribes. He he told them that so many times clearly, and a lot of times it just kind of went over their heads. In fact, just not long before this, Jesus Jesus made this statement. He said, he said, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this hour came I for this reason. So here's the thing that I want you to say. In my opinion, Jesus is not asking the Father to spare him from death on the cross. Rather, I believe that Jesus is praying because of the present suffering that he was enduring in Gethsemane. Jesus wasn't, wasn't praying to spare to be, to be spared the cross, he was praying not to prematurely die in the cross. Remember he said a little while ago, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful to the point of death. He felt death pressing in upon him. This is not my view alone. Charles Spurgeon was an advocate of this view. He, he, sa- he says this, he says, I do not believe that the Savior meant for a single moment to escape the pain which was necessary for our redemption. He's heaven's champion. He said, this cup, it appears to me, relates to something altogether different, not to the last conflict, but to the conflict in which he was then engaged. 
that conflict that took place in Gethsemane. That's why I call it ground zero and holy ground. This view is also supported by Scripture. In fact, this Scripture doesn't make any sense unless you understand this interpretation. Hebrews 5, 7 says this, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, He offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. That phrase, he was heard, is an answer to prayer. His answer to prayer was, we know it wasn't to be spared the cross, but it was to escape Gethsemane itself. Surviving Gethsemane makes sense as his answer to prayer because of his reverent submission. Look, we all know it's possible for a person to die because of extreme horror or fright that it's happened before in the past. Jesus was under this burden of becoming sin for us, of, of, of becoming cursed of God and forsaken. Luke twenty two forty five says this, And when he arose from prayer, and he went back to the disciples. He found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. They were experiencing this heaviness that was all over the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. What I find so amazing about this, this verse of Scripture is that, that in the midst of his own anguish, Jesus seems to be concerned about his disciples and their welfare. And he goes back to check. This is the second time that he's gone back to check, see how Peter and John and Andrew, or rather Peter, John, and uh, James are doing. You know, how, how are they making out? Oh, what an amazing Savior we have. But their being asleep probably just magnified the fact that Jesus is in this all by himself. There's nobody there to help him. I, I just wonder if the devil just gloated at a moment like this, and, and kind of even said to Jesus, look at them, they're sleeping. They can't even watch your back for an hour. And you want to experience eternal punishment for them? That's what you're wanting to die for? Come on, Jesus. You rebuke the, the, the storm. Why not rebuke this storm as well? I mean, after all, don't you care about your own life? You remember in the book of Job, God God and Satan are having a dialogue, and, and Satan says to dialogue, a man will do anything to spare his own life. Go ahead, touch his body now, and see that he won't curse you to his face. I would imagine that that's something similar that's going on right now before us. And the only explanation for the mystery of Gethsemane was that the death that Jesus was about to die was no mere physical death. The prospect of enduring the righteous wrath of God of an infinitely holy God alone can account for the agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. This was the storm that Jesus submitted himself to in absolute abandonment for God's glory and for the love of lost sinners. The innocent and perfect Son suffered what is equivalent to eternal punishment for us, and I like to say as us. Yet it's because God did not spare his son that I have the boldness to say that if you are a believer, God will spare you because he did not spare his own son. Now, what I want you to notice with me as we read this next portion of Scripture is the the absolute change that has taken place. Remember, Jesus was 
joyful and full of peace before Gethsemane and now through Gethsemane. The, the worst of Gethsemane is now over. And I want you to notice the difference. Mark 14, 41. It says, returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour's come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let's go. He's ready now. Here comes my betrayer. And just as he was speaking, Jesus knowing all things, even before, G- before Judas showed his face, Jesus knew he's coming. Now's the moment. And just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared with him a crowd armed with swords and clubs. From this moment, from, from, from this moment in the Garden of Gethsemane to, to his victory cry at the cross, it is finished. It's as if Gethsemane never happened. It's, it's as if a reset button was pressed. And Jesus is filled with courage and boldness again as the lion of the tribe of Judah, but, but he is a lamb who is silent before his shearers, and so he opens not his mouth. There's no more bloody sweat. There's no cry for help. There's no word of complaint. Not even when from the cross Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was as a convicted, guilty felon that Jesus spoke those words. But I want you to notice, he didn't say, oh God, oh God. He said, my God. My God, he never lost his identity as God's child or he never ceased trusting in his father. He was God's lamb. The perfect display of courage and faith now is Jesus faces his betrayers. And he does so with such amazing composure. In fact, John tells us that because it was dark and they came with lanterns and they came with torches and, and they wanted to make sure, are, are you, are you they, then they asked him, the, the soldiers asked him the question, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And when he said those two words, which is the name of God, the revelation that came way back in the book of Exodus, he said, I am. What happened to them? They fell backwards. I'm telling you what, if Jesus wanted to, they could have been like Velcro stuck to the ground and he could have just simply walked out of that garden, but he didn't. He said, I am. And when they got back up, they began to abuse him. Before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin in a mock trial, Jesus didn't open his mouth in his own defense, except when they adjured him by the name of the living God. Then they put him under a note, tell us, are you the Messiah? And he said, I am. I am. You see, while he could have called legions of angels to destroy his enemies, Restraint is the demonstration of a greater love and a greater courage than the world has ever known. The willingness to give his back to the lash, his beard to be plucked out, his hands and feet to be nailed to a cross. Who could, who could explain this other than here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness like the flood, when the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood, who his love will not remember, who could cease to sing his praise. He could never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. On the mount of crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast 
and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above. Heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. What I want you to take away today is knowing that Jesus endured the storm of God's wrath so that we wouldn't. You and I could have never survived that storm. But Jesus survived the storm for us. When the three hours of supernatural darkness was over and the transaction between Father, Son, and Spirit was all accomplished, the veil of the temple was ripped in two from the top to the bottom. And the earth, the Bible says, began to quake and rocks began to split and graves were opened at that very moment. And something awesome happened. The redemption of lost sinners. And what, is, what, what does all this mean? It means this, that God has taken eternal punishment off the table for those of you who believe and repent. It is not even a, an issue to even discuss. The lion conquered by becoming a lamb and has taken away our sin. And he's rescued us from the ultimate storm. So let me just kind of wrap up this message this morning and try to give some practical application to to what we've considered. Every storm, and this is, this is so important, every storm that we will ever face in this life, and we will face storms, every storm that we will ever face in this life will be like a sunny day and like puffy white clouds against a brilliant blue sky in comparison, in comparison to the storm that we have been rescued from. That is, that, that is a big deal for us to always remember and to maintain. Yeah, there, there are some storms that we're to resist with heavenly authority, but there are also some storms that God will require that we learn how to endure with an eye of faith to keep trusting in the goodness of God and to believe that God works all things together for our good and for his glory. Now, some of you have been through some horrendous storms. Some of you have lost loved ones. You've lost children. You've lost a spouse. You've lost health. But it hasn't made you bitter. It's made you sweeter. It's made you more conformed to the image of God's Son, and that is what God is after, that these storms that we endure, the storms that we weather, the storms that we go through, have a profound effect. They're part of the process of God conforming us to the image of his son. Like what, what will not destroy us will only make us stronger, will make us wiser, will make us more long-suffering. Remember that the sweetest fruit came from the garden where there was the greatest sorrow. I want you to think about this. Maybe, maybe the following story will help us as we, as we realize that sometimes what God is simply asking us to do is to trust and obey. There's a story about a man who was asleep in his cabin, and the Lord appeared to him one night, and the Lord said to him, my son, I have an assignment for you, and, and this is your mission. I want you to, and he pointed to a rock that was outside the cabin, a great massive rock, and he says, what I want you to do is every day I want you to go out and I want you to push against that rock with all of your might and all of your strength. And I want you to do that on every single day. 
And the man obeyed, and, and he went out, and he pushed against that rock every single day. And, and what seemed like a very long time, over, the, over that period of time, he, he would push against that thing, and it, it, didn't, it was unmovable. And after a while, after what seemed like a long time, he got really discouraged and felt like he was a failure. And one night he went before the Lord in prayer and he said, Lord, I feel like such a failure. I haven't been able to move that rock, not even a single inch. And the Lord spoke to him and said, son, I never asked you to move the rock. I asked you to push against that rock and that you did. Look at yourself. Look at your arms. They're muscular. Look at your back. It's brown and sinewy. Look at your legs. They're massive and strong. You're not the same as the way you were when you first started. I ask you to just trust in my wisdom. Trust that my plans for you, plans to give you a hope in the future. Sometimes when we are in a storm that won't move, all God asks us to do is to trust and obey. And if we trust and obey, I'm telling you what, you will not be disappointed. And the reason for that is that God gives us grace. We're not alone in the storm. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Son of God was forsaken at the cross so that you and I will never, ever be forsaken. In fact, the verse that says that we might boldly say, I will never leave you nor forsake you has five negatives in that, which means that God will never, 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 no, never will God ever forsake us. The love of God has been shed abroad for us by the Holy Spirit into our hearts so that we can be more than conquerors through him who loved us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to share about Gethsemane, what, what a privilege it is for me to speak and for us, Lord God, to be a part of what you're doing Lord, I just want to pray for anybody that might be here today that doesn't have a relationship with you. That God, somehow, some way today, by some of the things that have been said, that they will understand that their hearts will be open to the love of God that is revealed in Jesus, that Jesus absorbed the storm, the greatest storm for us and as us, as our substitute. And that through believing in Jesus and repenting of our sins, coming to Christ, God, you take eternal punishment off the table for all that believe. If you're here this morning and that is your story today, you've not yet put your trust in Christ, you do so by an act of faith. Would, would, would you do that right now? Would you pray? And, and again, I say it's not magic words. It's the heart that reaches out to receive the gift of eternal life that's in Christ. Say something like this in your own heart, silently there, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Come into my heart. Be the Lord and Savior of my life. I believe that you are the substitute for me as me, that I might have eternal life. For those of you that are here this morning and maybe maybe right now you, you are in the midst of that storm and it's not moving for you. And God's calling you to, to trust and obey, trust his wisdom, trust his goodness. 
And as you trust and obey, I, I pray the Lord will give you grace to strengthen you so that as you're being conformed to the image of God's Son more and more, you are reflecting His image. You're becoming sweeter, not bitter by the grace of God.